Okay, our series is titled, say it with me, The Beautiful, Believable Basics. And our sermon today is the second of the seven-part series, A Beautiful, Believable Story, right? So there's the parts that we're going to be going through. Next week, A Beautiful, Believable Man, followed by A Beautiful, Believable Plan, Miracle, Heaven, and Hell. I've had several people say to me, how are you going to preach a sermon on a beautiful, believable hell? Well, the answer is you'll just have to come and see. You'll just have to come and see. As we make our way through this series, this brand new series that I'm super excited about, and I've said this before, in many ways, this series is designed for the inquirer, for the seeker, for the person who's open, but maybe not totally convinced about God or convinced about the goodness of God or Christianity. This is the sermon series. These are the ideas. These are the thoughts that I wish I would have heard as a 22, 23-year-old seeker. If somebody could have sat me down and said, David, I need six or seven hours of your undivided attention. I have something I have to tell you. This is what I would have wanted to hear. The 45-year-old David looking back 20 years and saying, what would I have said to that 22, 23-year-old young man who was searching, who was seeking, who had some idea about religion but frankly was turned off about God? Not too interested in God, the versions of religion and the versions of church that I had personally been exposed to, while not, not terrible, were not inviting. They weren't attractive. They didn't draw me in. They didn't woo me in. So if I could sit that young man down and I could say, you need to hear what I have to say, this is what I would say. What I'm presenting in this series is what I would say. And we're asking three questions as we make our way through this series. Three very important questions. Number one, is it believable? Which is implicit in the title of the series, The Beautiful, Believable Basics. So is it believable? That is to say, is there any evidence that would invite us to proceed along these lines? Number two, what's the next one? Is it livable, right? There are things that are true, perhaps, that aren't always easy, and they're not inviting. Does it work, you know, sort of down in the nitty-gritty of life? Can we roll up our sleeves and actually make it work? Does it work? The proof, is it in the pudding? And so not only is it believable, is it livable? And then we're going to ask a question not of evidence or of experience, but a question of aesthetics. Is it beautiful? This is a question that basically says, okay, it might be true and it might even be workable in some utilitarian sense, but is it attractive? Is it inviting? Is it beautiful? Does it woo me and invite me to believe? And those are the questions that we're going to be addressing ourselves to to throughout this series. Last week, we took a look at a beautiful, believable God, and we, we said that our North Star, our guiding light for who God is, and even in His nature, what God is, and we made a distinction, didn't we? between knowing God's character, which we can know, and knowing God's nature, which is necessarily mysterious to us because we are creatures. But but, but even within the mystery that is God's nature, we found this three-word, three-syllable phrase. I want you to say it with me. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 says, God is love. One more time with a little more enthusiasm. God is love. This is a window not just into God's actions, not just into God's character, but but a window into the very nature, the thing that makes God God, right? This is what philosophers call and, and theologians call ontology, the nature of being. What makes a dog a dog, a giraffe a giraffe? A cheetah, a cheetah, or a human, a human. What is the essence of cheetahness or giraffeness? What makes a cheetah, a cheetah? What makes God, God? And the answer is when it comes to a substantive or, or a, a nature in terms of God's nature, we don't know. We, we don't really know, but here's this little three-word, three-syllable window into what God is. Not merely that He's loving, which would be an adjective describing behaviors or thoughts, but, but John makes an equivalence, a grammatical equivalence, a theological equivalence. He says, God 
is love, a noun. Not just loving, an adjective, but, but God, something about God, the thing that makes God, God. Something about Godness, he says, is love. And we talked last week about the fact that most gods are not good news, but if the God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Scripture, as we're going to see today, if the God of this beautiful, believable story, if that God exists, it is fantastically good news. Now, I want to begin by apologizing to any teachers that are here today, and I want to start by saying that the Bible is not a textbook to be dreaded, but a storybook to be read and absorbed. Again, apologies to teachers. Did he just say that textbooks are to be dreaded? Come on, you and I know the truth. Textbooks are dreaded. And many people view the Bible as a kind of textbook, a kind of there will be a test at the end and you'd better pass. Because if you don't pass, then you're going to end up lost. I'm, like, I'm going to go out on a limb here today and I'm going to suggest to you that the Bible is not primarily, in fact, in, in really no sense is the Bible a textbook that you study to pass some sort of an intellectual test at the end. What the Bible is, is a storybook. It's a, it's a book made up of lots of different stories. David and Goliath and Daniel and the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and the fiery furnace, the raising of Lazarus, the walking on water, the feeding of the 5,000. I mean, it's just story after story after story. It would not be an exaggeration to say there are hundreds, yea, thousands of stories in this book. It is a storybook. And with, with, with what intent do we read a storybook? We don't read to, to, to say, okay, I make sure, better remember who this character is and what his name is because there's going to be a test at the end of the storybook. No. When we read a storybook or, or something that invites us into a tale or into a narrative, we become immersed in that narrative, immersed in it. We, want, we, we absorb ourselves into it. This is why movies and television series and novels are so inviting because they invite us into a story. I'd like to suggest here today that the Bible is inviting us into a story. A number of sort of smaller sub-stories, subplots, subtexts, but there is a grand overarching story that we're going to talk about today. And I want to tell you, it is a beautiful, believable story. What story is the Bible telling? What is the story that the Bible is telling? I've asked this question in congregations and audiences all over the world. I say, what's the Bible about? I just did it with the Arise students this week. I said, imagine that somebody arrived from another planet, right? Not, not, not a secular Australian or a secular Scandinavian or a secular American. No, 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 no. They know nothing about the Bible. They arrive from another planet, another solar system. They know nothing about the Bible. And they come to you. They come to you. Here's this Martian. He walks up to you and says, hey, look, I've seen that a lot of people value this book, this book called the Bible. What's it about? Then I asked the Arise students, and they gave a number of, you know, Credible answers. They gave answers, none of which were bad and all of which contained facets of the truth. And yet somehow in that group of very intelligent, astute, almost 50 of them managed to not give the best answer. Good answers, but not the best answer. And I've done this enough times in enough places that I think if I put the same question to the people in this church that you would answer similarly to those that have answered around the world. You give good answers, elements of the answer. I've heard all kinds of things. It's a story of God's love, which is true. It's a story of salvation, which is true. It's a story of God's victory over evil, which is true. It's a story of creation. All of these things are true. What I'm going to try and do today is paint the larger biblical narrative of the story that the Bible is telling. And in so doing, I want to I want to begin where we ended last week with this amazing quotation from John Peckham, the author of the book, The Love of God, A Canonical Model. I consider John a personal friend. In fact, just this week, I had a two-hour conversation with him in this very office, had a few questions I needed to ask him. And I just thought it would be 10 or 15 minutes, and he gave me two hours out of his day, and I just was so impressed. 36-year-old young man, 
passionate about Jesus, one of the brightest up-and-coming scholars in the world today, and I just had two hours to pick his brain and, and to just sort of ask a series of questions. And, and I told him that this particular paragraph from his book, The Love of God, just I was just bathing in this quotation. We ended on it last week, and we're going to commence with it this week. John says, at the risk of oversimplification, God's love is, and we're going to take a big deep breath, here we go, God's love is virtuous, kind, generous, unmerited, voluntary, faithfully devoted, evaluative, profoundly affectionate and compassionate, intensely passionate, patient, long-suffering, and merciful, gracious, just, steadfast, amazingly reliable, and enduring, you can exhale. Right? Can you say Amen. If that God exists, that is absolutely beautiful. You can't think of better good news. He continues, divine love is most often directed toward humans, and this is the part I want to drive out today, and is continually manifested in, what's the word? Action. Love is manifested in action that grounds the divine human relationship itself. And then he's going to give a list of actions, including, but not limited to, he begins, creation, calling, election, covenant, beneficence, deliverance, forgiveness, redemption, restoration, corrective discipline, wrath toward oppressors, and evil of all kinds, and many others. God's love is all these amazing things, but it's not just an idea, it's not just a concept, it's not just a philosophy of some sort. God's love does stuff. In the same way that I'm, when I'm with my wife and, and, and I can tell her I love her, but, but she does and, and will say, if you love me, then. Now that door swings both ways. I play that card too, right? In other words, I hear that you love me, now I want to be shown that you love me. And Peckham says God shows his love in all of these wonderful ways. And I'm going to suggest to you today that the actions, the actions that, that we find God exhibiting and that tell the, the story of Scripture are the three words that you see on the screen here. The story of this book, if I were to speak to a Martian or to somebody who came from, who knew nothing about the Bible, which some of those people live on planet Earth, let's be honest, people who know nothing, or almost worse than somebody who knows nothing, people who have had a negative exposure to what the Bible says, a negative exposure to God, a negative exposure to church, a negative exposure to Christianity. And if somebody comes and says, what is this book about? I'll say, you can reduce this book down to a story that has three basic themes, creation, conflict, and covenant. I want you to say those three words with me. Creation, conflict, and covenant. My mom's a nurse, right? So I grew up, and in, in, in our home, we had a lot of nursing textbooks, right? She was, a, she was a, first a nurse in, in the cancer unit, and then she became a nurse in the neonative, neonatal intensive unit. And uh, she had this book that I was just absolutely fascinated by as a young boy. It was an anatomy textbook that was a series of transparencies. Has anybody here seen one of these books before? They're so cool. I was just, I loved it. In my young years, I would just open up this book and you would lay down first the skeletal system, right? And here's the skeleton. And then you would lay down the veins and the arteries. And then you would overlay, you know, the intestines and other, and then you would lay over the muscles. And then finally the integumentary system or the skin. And I just loved this idea that there were layers. It was helping me to see what was inside of me. It was giving me a sense of who I am and of who I am as a human being. I'm suggesting here today that, that the, the Bible story is very similar. You, you have the sort of skeletal system, which is the great truth of creation, which we're going to talk about in a moment. 
And then overlaid over the top of creation is this transparency that says that into the midst of God's good creation came conflict, right? It's another layer of the story. And then, and then the, the transparency that we lay over that is that God's response to the conflict that came into his good creation was a covenantal response. Now, you might be sitting here today as a a non-Christian person or as a seeker or somebody who's not familiar with the Bible or with churchy language, and you might be saying, I don't know what that means. I don't know what you mean by covenantal. Well, that's why you're here. It's one of the reasons you're here. I'm going to teach you what that means. Because let me say this, and I want to say this especially to those of you that have been Christians, followers of God for a, a number of years. If anybody ever, 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 ever asks you, or if you find yourself in a situation where people are inquiring about what the Bible is about, what, what is this book about? What's the story? Let me just say this. If you manage to give an answer in which you do not use the word covenant, you have not given the best answer. If you answer somebody's question about what is the Bible about and you manage to do so in a way, some circuitous way where you don't use the word covenant, which by the way, most of us in this room would do that. In fact, just telling on my Arise students here, I think of the sort of 30 or 40 answers that I received the other morning when I asked this question. I don't think any of them use the word covenant. Right? And I've done this all around the world. I've asked this question of people and they'll say a lot of really good things. Nothing that's wrong. They'll say it's about salvation. They'll say it's about God's love. They'll say it's about many, many things. Deliverance and, and victory over sin and the great controversy. All of that's true. But right at the heart on that transparency, transparency overlay, first we have the good, God's good creation and then we overlay conflict that comes into and perverts God's good creation. And then God's solution that lays over the top of that is, yes, salvation. But what many of us don't understand is that salvation comes wrapped in a covenantal story. And that's what we're going to talk about today. It's what we're going to talk about next week. So what we're going to be talking about the whole series. And if I'm doing my job right, it's what we'll be talking about basically every week. Every week we will be in some significant sense exploring what it means that God is covenantally faithful, that his love is a covenant-bound love. And so let's unpack that. Last week we began by noting that the first four words of the Bible are these four words, in the beginning God. Those four words are then followed by a verb. What's the verb that follows these four words? You know it. In the beginning God created. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. So the very first thing that we know about God in, Gen in Genesis, the very first thing that we're revealed uh, about God is that he's creative. There's, there's something beautiful about creativity. He's a creator. He makes, he fashions, he builds. In the beginning, God created, and this becomes a singularly important motif. In fact, to use our anatomy transparency illustration, this is the skeletal system. Right? This is the thing that gives structure and meaning just as my skeletal system gives, you know, it, it gives my muscles a place to hang and it gives my intestines a place to reside safely inside of my ribcage. Without the skeletal system, I'd just be a big blob here. Right? In the same way, if the, if the great truth of creation is somehow extracted or demythologized from Scripture, what's left is a mess of chicken soup for the soul. If we deny that, that God is well and truly creator, not just in, in some general sense, but as we're going to see, your creator, we've missed the point. So let's just do a little tour de force here, shall we, of just how important, how central creation is to the beautiful, believable story that's found in Scripture. Okay, so we go from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, to Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, here God at the close of the Sabbath command inside of the Ten Commandments, which God wrote with his own finger on tablets of stone, says these words, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. And he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and he made it holy. 
You are here today, most of you, out of, uh, out of honor, out of belief, and out of appreciation for the fact that, that God created and rested. You are following that, that typological pattern. God made in six, rested in seven, made in six, rested in seven, made in six, rested in seven. And you and me, we have found ourselves in the rhythm, the divine rhythm of a Sabbath rest. But notice that, that God says the reason that we have a Sabbath is that I am the creator. I created, and as a memorial of that creation, again, the skeletal system, without creation, there is no conflict and there is no covenant. Let's continue. Psalm chapter 33, verses 6 to 9, two of the best-known verses in the, in the Israelite hymn book dealing with creation. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the, them by the breath of His mouth. For He spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Can the church say amen? We believe that. We believe that God just spoke and it was done. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Staying in the Psalms, Psalm 19, was so thankful that you read this this morning, Mel. Uh, uh, it talked about Psalm 18 and then Psalm 19. This is in the Living Bible. The heavens are telling the glory of God. They are a marvelous display of His craftsmanship. Oh, I like that. God is a craftsman, scenes a craftsman. He likes to work with wood and he, he likes to make things and he likes to build things. Don't you love the idea that God likes to build things? He likes to make things in the beginning. God created. And the psalmist says, man, God is awesome. Look at his craftsmanship. Isaiah 45, verse 18. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain. Oh, no, he didn't create it in vain. For what purpose did he create it then? Who formed it to be, what's the word? He made it to be inhabited. I am God, I am the Lord, and there is nobody else. There is no other God. We talked about that last week. Most gods are bad news. We transition now from the Old to the New Testament. John chapter 1, verse 3. Speaking of Jesus himself, all things were made through him, and without him was nothing made that was made. There are two kinds of things in the universe, things that are made and things that are not. And all the things that are not God are things that are made. Everything was made. You were made. That chair was made. This world was made. The galaxy were... And, and this is what, what, what John is saying here in the opening of his gospel. Everything was made by him. And without him was nothing made that was made. Creation. The skeletal system of the story. Right? We live in a world today that's in denial about the basic skeletal system. And it's no wonder that people are a giant mush of beliefs about what's the meaning of life? Where am I going? The, the four great questions in life are origin, meaning, morality, destiny. Where am I from? Why am I here? Where am I going? And how should I live? Right? If you don't have a skeletal system, you're going to have a hard time answering that question. If you don't believe that God purposefully, intentionally, and beautifully created something, including but not limited to you, well, how are you ever going to answer the question, what's the purpose of life? Why am I here and where am I going? Romans chapter 1, verse 20. I love this in the Living Bible. The Apostle Paul says, Since the earliest times... Men have seen the earth and the sky and all that God made, and they have known of His existence and of His great eternal power, so they will have no excuse when they stand before God. I love this idea. From the earliest times, he says, people with eyes could look up and see the sky, and they could look down and see the earth and say, where'd this come from? Where did this come from? It must have come from somewhere, from something, for some purpose. As the, book of, uh, as the New Testament closes and as the book of the Bible closes, we find ourselves in the book of Revelation. And here in the very throne room of God in Revelation chapter 4, we find these amazing verses. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Can you say amen? Is God worthy to receive glory and honor and power? The answer is yes. Why? 
Why? Well, notice what the angels say. Notice what the saved say. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Even if there was no salvation, even if there was no cross, even if, if, if that had never happened, we would still have ample, yea, infinite opportunity and reason to praise God just because he chose to create when he wasn't under any external compulsion to do so. God doesn't have to create. He doesn't lack something. He doesn't need something. There wasn't something lacking in God where he said, well, you know, I have to do something because I'm imperfect in my essence. No. God opted to create. He chose to create. Why? Out of love. And he didn't just create any ordinary things. Look around the room, friends. He created beautiful things. He created important things. He created things that matter. He created human beings. He made them in his own image. Every one of us, or I shouldn't say every one of us, but for those of us in this room that have had the experience of holding someone else's child before we ever held our own, we know that babies are cool. It's cool to hold a baby. I mean, a small human being. My favorite part of a small human being are the fingernails and the toenails. They're just so small. They're just amazing. I, I just look at those. I can't get over those tiny little fingers and those tiny little toes. I, I remember holding little babies before I ever had my own, and I thought, yeah, babies are cool. Right? Babies are cool. They become people, and people are cool. It's not like kittens and cats, right? It's, that's a whole different thing. If they were just kittens, it would be great, but kittens turn into cats, and it's not a great thing. But, 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 but babies, babies become really cool human beings. They become your best friend. They become your neighbor. They become your plumber. They become your pastor. They become your son and your daughter. Because a whole different thing happens when you hold your little human. See, it's cool when you hold somebody else's baby, but for that first time when you hold your son, and every parent in here will know what I'm talking about, when you hold your daughter, now it's a whole different level, right? It goes from cool to I never knew that life could prepare me for this. I, 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 just, I had no idea. Nothing in life prepared me to hold something that is a product of the love that I have for my spouse. Let that settle in. We talked about that last week. It's not a coincidence that the, 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 the life-giving, child-birthing act is the love-making act. Right? What you're holding in your hands is the incarnation, the embodiment of love. It's half you and half your partner. And to hold that in your hands is a whole nother level. And so if there had never been sin, if there had never been a cross, and if there had never been the plan of salvation, we could praise God for creation alone because creation is amazing. It's the skeletal system that makes the Bible story the beautiful, believable story that it is. Lee Strobel author, professor, and pastor. He's written many books, over 20 books. Probably his best-known book is a book called The Case for Christ that was recently turned into a movie. Anybody see that movie? It's worth your time, worth seeing. Very good movie. I love what he says here. He was an atheist. His wife became a believer in God. His wife became a believer in Jesus. And he set out as an investigative journalist for the Chicago Tribune. He set out, this is the story the movie tells, to disprove the believability and the veracity and the authenticity of, of the Bible and of Scripture. He set out to disprove it. And the story, of course, as you might imagine, called The Case for Christ, is that he, he finds that it's true, that it's, that it's believable, and that it's beautiful. That there are evidences, profoundly persuasive evidences, that, that say, yes, Jesus was who he claimed to be, and the Bible is God's word to mankind. And, and so he says this. I love this. He says, if I were to continue in atheism, this is the choice he was finally faced with. And frankly, it's the choice that all the people in and outside of this room are faced with as well. Is there or is not there a God? There is or there isn't. It's either or. It's this or it's that. And I love what Strobel says. To continue in atheism, I need to believe that. Okay, prepare yourself for this. Here we go. Nothing produces everything. Non-life produces life. 
Randomness produces fine-tuning. Chaos produces information. Unconsciousness produces consciousness. Non-reason produces reason. And he says, I just didn't have that much faith. I didn't have enough faith to remain an atheist. Because it's far better to explain and, and far more persuasive to say that reason came from reason and, and creativity came from intelligence and, and order came from order, not from chaos. Everybody's exercising faith of some kind or some manifestation. And I love Strobel's point here. I, I, I just put this up so you could see it. If you've not yet seen the movie, I invite you to see it. It's very good, The Case for Christ. It, it documents, I'd read the book years ago, and uh, was really happy to see that the movie is, is very true to the book and very fair. It's, it's the tracing of his intellectual journey and in coming to believe Jesus. I love Psalm 139, and, and I don't usually quote the Message Bible, which is a paraphrase by Eugene Peterson, because sometimes he takes liberties that I'm not super comfortable with. But, but as I was looking through various translations of Psalm 139, none of the translations that I was reading through captured the essence of the, the, the specialness of your creation, not just of general creation, not just of the beautiful cheetah or of the hippopotamus or of the giraffe or of the solar system, but you. What's special about you? And I love the way that Eugene Peterson captures this in Psalm 139. He says, you shaped me. You shaped me first inside, then out. You formed me in my mother's womb. By the way, just a word on that. Right now in first world countries, countries like Australia and the United States of America and most of the countries of Europe, abortions right now are at an all-time low. The last 20 years, they're the lowest they've been in 20 years. And, and the reason, many believe that the reason is, is that science is giving us greater and greater tools to go inside of the womb, inside of the... We now can see a little baby in photographic image hold, sucking its thumb. and Because that's a human in there. It's not just a blob of tissue. It's, and, and this is what the psalmist is saying. You made me. You fashioned me. You saw me when I was in my, my mother's womb sucking its thumb. What the ancients couldn't see. Right? What the psalmist never had the privilege to see. Sonographers like Mel can now see, can look inside and see there's a baby in there. It doesn't become a baby magically when it passes, you know, outside into the, into the air. It's a baby in there. And this increasing scientific knowledge is, is giving us video proof and evidence to say, not that we ne never believed that there wasn't a baby, but it's just when you see the fingers and the toes and the little nails even inside, he said, that's a child in there. That's a little baby in there. And that's what the psalmist is saying. You formed me in my mother's womb. I thank you, God. You're breathtaking. Can you say amen? God, 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 God I just, I'm, I'm, you're breathtaking. I lose my breath when I think about your goodness. Body and soul, I am marvelously made. I, me. And out of this, and this is what Mel is driving at when she leads worship in Britain, the team, I worship in adoration. What a creation. You know me inside and out. You know every bone in my body. You know exactly how I was made. Me, I was made. How I was sculpted from nothing into something. You know me inside and out. Like an open book, you watched me grow from conception to birth. All the stages of my life were spread out before you. The days of my life all prepared before I'd even lived a day. I love this idea that God didn't create just in some general sense, friends, but God created you. The psalmist then says, your thoughts toward me, how beautiful. God, I will never comprehend them. I couldn't even begin to count those thoughts any more than I could count the sand of the sea. Oh, let me rise in the morning and always live with you. And I'll insert this, my creator, my God, my friend, my king. The great truth of creation is the skeletal system of the biblical story, the beautiful, believable story of Scripture. 
Just this morning I was reading that the average male will produce something like 525 billion sperm in his life. A woman is born with about 2 million egg follicles, of which about 450 will become mature eggs that will be distributed uh, out of her body in, in her lifetime. That means then that the chances of you, biologically speaking, are vanishingly small. Right? You were one of 525 billion and one of 2 million. And that's just in your parents. What if your parents had not come together? Then it's not you. Friends, biologically speaking, you are extremely unlikely, and extremely is not even the right word here, infinitesimally unlikely. And yet the psalmist says, you saw me, you knew me. And the truth of the matter is, is that even though your existence is highly unlikely, vanishingly small odds against you actually being here, here you are, and you matter, and you know it. You know your life is important. You know it's significant. You know that there's something out there that gives meaning and significance to your life. Not just to life in general, but to your life. You know in your innermost being, says the psalmist, and I'm saying today because this is the whole of the scriptural narrative, you were created. You were made. You were fashioned. You are beautiful to God. There is not a mistake in you. Your nose is not too big and your thighs are not too fat and your hair is not too thin. God looks at you and he thinks this is a, this is a unique, irreplaceable, non-duplicable work of art that I have in front of me here. This is my child. You are infinitely important to God. We're asking the question, is it believable? Is it livable? Is it beautiful? And the answer to all three of those questions when it comes to creation is absolutely in fact, the contrary is unlivable. The contrary is unlivable. I, I love this from Randy Alcorn, a, a well-known author and pastor in, in the evangelical Christian church. I love how he sets these two ideas, creation versus non-creation, in stark juxtaposition. Prepare yourselves for this, because this is the choice you're making. This is the choice you're making. He says, Alcorn says, you are the descendant of a tiny cell. Right? Situation A, exhibit A, possibility A. You are the descendant of a tiny cell of primordial protoplasm washed up on an empty beach three and a half billion years ago. You are the blind and arbitrary product of time and chance and natural forces. You are a mere grab bag of atomic particles, a conglomeration of genetic substance. You exist on a tiny planet in a mighty solar system in an empty corner of a meaningless universe. You are a purely biological entity. There's option A for you. Different only in degree, but not in kind, from a microbe, a virus, or an amoeba. You have no essence beyond your body, and at death you will cease to exist entirely. In short, you came from nothing, and you're going nowhere. Now enjoy life. Right? The word that philosophers use for this, theolo uh, this philosophical idea is called nihilism or nihilism. It means nothingness. Jean-Paul Sartre, one of the best-known atheists of yesteryear, came to grips with the reality of his atheism, and he came to the place where he said, if I embrace the truth of atheism, the only question that remains is, why don't I end my life? If life truly is meaningless, and we are spinning in the meaningless vortex of the universe, why not? And he said, the only reason is I'm afraid. Cowardice alone prevented him from following through with what he believed was the inevitable outlook of a universe in which there's no meaning. That love that you had for your child, those little fingernails and toenails and the taste of a mango and, and those beautiful symphonies that you've heard and those glorious sunsets, all meaningless. Just a happy, capricious, serendipitous trick of nature. 
to make you think that life was important and meaningful. All those Hollywood movies that convinced you that the underdog would win, that, that you could overcome all odds, all just junk, meaningless. It's a giant cosmic trick played on you by time and chance, says Alcorn. Now carry on and have a nice day. Don't worry. Be happy. You can't be happy. We cannot. Now notice he gives this. Okay, I'll give you another option. Here's another option. Here we go. Option B. Here's your alternative. You are the special creation of a good and all-powerful God. You, yes, you, with your fat thighs and big nose and thinning hair, you are created in His image with capacities to think and feel and worship that set you above all other life forms. You differ from animals, not simply in degree, but in kind. Not only is your kind unique, I love this, but you are unique among your kind. Right? 525 billion and 2 billion and your parents coming together, what are the odds? He says, you are unique. You're irreplaceable. I wish I had time to talk about macroeconomics and what drives price and, and how you have scarcity and abundance. And if there's a lot of something, price goes down. And if there's only one of something, price goes, well, it's priceless. You are irreplaceable. There is only one of you. Heaven forbid if something were to happen to you, and I'm not just talking about to your physical body, but if eternally something were to happen to you, you're gone, never to be replaced. Oh, you are infinitely valuable to God. Not only is your kind unique, but you are unique among your kind. Your creator loves you so much. He so intensely desires your companionship and affection that he has a beautiful plan for your life. In addition, God gave his own life in Jesus that you might spend eternity with him. If you accept his gift of loving salvation, you can become a very child of God. And Alcorn, through this juxtaposition, is basically inviting us, which story are you going to believe? What's your story? Because, friends, at the end of the day, the stories that we tell ourselves and the stories that we tell our nations and the stories that we tell our communities and the stories that we tell our children, those stories matter. They matter. They have implications. If you came from nothing and are going nowhere, then why shouldn't you sit around all day smoking pot, looking at porn, and playing Xbox? Why not? Why wouldn't that be just a perfectly fine way to spend your life? Right? But, if you, but if you were made in the image of God for a purpose, this then becomes a far cry from the creational intent and purpose for which you were made by your Father who loves you. Conflict. As we lay over the skeletal system of creation, this, this element of conflict, and we'll spend more time on this next week, but I just want to tease out a few of very important ideas here. Lots of people, good people, intelligent people, honest people have looked at the earth and said, I cannot believe in God. There's too much evil. There's too much pain. There's too much heartbreak. I can't do it. Maybe it's your own heartache, your own situation, or maybe you've seen uh, somebody that you loved or you've just observed through television or some other means. And you said, I just, that's a bridge too far. I just can't do it. And people like me, pastors like me and, and Dr. Peckham and many others, the, the thing that we're trying to do is to, to get people to believe that it's possible to affirm the goodness of God in the face of a world that's gone south, that's gone in a hell, to hell in a handbasket. This is, when we attempt to do this, what I'm attempting to do right now, there's a technical word for this, and the word is a theodicy. Theodicy, it's, a, it's, a, it's an English word that comes from two Greek words, theos, which is God, and dike, which is justice. Here's the dictionary definition. The defense of God's goodness in the, in the, and omnipotence in the face of the existence of evil. 
Okay, it basically goes like this. It's, it's just three really simple ideas. Number one, God is good. Number two, God is all-powerful, followed by the question, what gives? Please explain. Because I'll tell you right now, many of your neighbors and many of your associates, they would love to believe what you believe, but that hurdle is too high. They, they can't get over that hurdle. It's too big. Too much pain, too much heartbreak, too many unnecessary deaths. It just... You may have the faith, you may have been raised in a community of faith and in a situation where, where those are hurdles for you, but you are able to surmount them. You are able to get over the various obstacles of imposition between you and God. But some people can't. They just look and they say, how can you say that God is good? And so they ask these questions. Is God good? We say yes. Is God all powerful? We say yes. And then they say, explain. And it's not easy to explain. It's not easy to explain. I'm going to talk about this next week. Epicurus the third century Greek philosopher, third century BC Greek philosopher put it this way. He said, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. He's evil. He's cruel, Epicurus says. Is he both willing and able? Then where did evil come from? Is he neither able nor willing? Then what are you calling him God for? And we have to recognize and, and affirm the gravity of these questions. We cannot pretend in our happy Christian world that these are not real questions that do not dig at the soul. And even if Christians are honest in their innermost soul, these questions tug at us. How do we affirm the goodness of God in the face of horrendous and seemingly incomprehensible evil? Well, I got good news for you. You are not alone in questioning God's goodness in the face of evil. In fact, this is something that a lot of people find really hard to swallow. The Bible writers themselves over and over and over again ask the same questions. Uh, probably none more so than Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13 going back to the message. You can't be serious, the prophet says. He's talking to God, by the way. He says, God, you can't be serious. You can't condone evil. So why don't you do something about this? Why are you silent now? This outrage, evil men swallow up the righteous and you stand around and watch. God is not threatened by your doubts. God is not threatened by the difficulties that you have. If God in inspired scripture can have people effectively yelling at him and saying, have you lost your mind, God? Have you taken your hands off the steering wheel of the universe? God is not threatened by your doubts and your difficulties and your questions. Be open. Be honest. He knows anyway. And what I love about this is that scripture gives us permission to ask the hard questions. God is bigger than your questions. He's bigger than your doubts. He's not insecure and threatened by the things that trouble you. Be open. Be honest. Speak to him. Right through scripture, we see this, Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 1. If I took you to court, Lord, this is Jeremiah, I love it. If I took you to court, you would win. That's a fair concession. But I still got questions about your justice. Why do the guilty persons enjoy success? Why are evildoers so happy and prosperous? I got no question you'd win in a court of law, God. You could out-argue with me, but I still got questions. Psalm 10, verse 1. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself in these times of trouble? There's hardly a person in this room probably who hasn't asked themselves that question at some time, at some moment, at some event in your life. And say, what? Why? Where? Where are you, O oh Lord? Isaiah 59, verse 11. We look for justice, but there is none. 
If Epicurus complaint and the complaint of your neighbor is that if God is so good, why is there so much evil? At least we can find some resonance in the fact that the Bible doesn't ask us to turn our brains off and pretend like this isn't a very good question that's difficult to answer. The Bible has the very inspired writers saying again and again, God, what's going on? Why does evil prosper? Why is justice languishing in the street? Where are you? Why are you hiding? Can't you hear? There's one psalm where the psalmist literally says, are you deaf? that you cannot hear and blind that you cannot see? I love the fact that the Lord gives us permission to ask the hard questions and a a phrase that comes up over and over again in the Old Testament as well as in the New is this phrase, How long, O Lord? This plaintive and frustrated cry, How much longer? How much longer must we endure a world like this, a world bathed in conflict? Because yes, there is a good creation and yes, you held your little boy your little girl and their toenails were so small and beautiful and their head smelled just like the, the smell of freedom itself. But, 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 but some children are born with defects and some children never get to be born at all. And some children have bombs dropped on them and some children live in, on garbage piles. And so we see beauty and blight in sharp juxtaposition. We see horror and hope in, in sharp contrast and we, and we cry out to God, Why? Why should we be the favored ones to live in this beautiful continent called Australia to have, you know, 30 pairs of shoes and to choose which bow tie to wear and and which church I'm going to attend and what meal I'm going to eat? We know in our innermost souls that there are people out there, many millions of them, who don't have the luxuries that we have. And and people like two of my close friends, uh, two of my closest friends in the world, uh, Bob and Bobby, were killed by a drunk driver. Well, they're not here. They couldn't be here today. They didn't have the option of being here today because somebody drank too much alcohol, got on the wrong side of the road, and they're gone now. And so we, the beneficiaries, look at, we're the survivors. We're the ones that have survived. And the funny thing is, is that you're always looking at somebody else's car accident on the side of the road. It's never you. Until it will be you, but you won't be looking because you'll be gone. Right? So we have this illusion of security and this illusion of safety. We feel like the world is unfair to others, but somehow it's not been as unfair to us. But I love this idea that the Bible is giving us permission to say, God... What is going on? Have you lost your mind? Did you let go of the steering wheel of the universe? Psalm 94, verse 3. How long will the wicked, O Lord, how long will the wicked win? How long? Habakkuk 1, 2. We opened with Habakkuk. We closed with Habakkuk on this. From the common English Bible. Lord, how long will I call for help and you will not listen? I cry out to you. There's violence in the land, but you don't deliver. Jesus was asked a question in Matthew chapter 13 about this very thing. Why is there evil in the face of so much good? And Jesus gave a five-word answer. (laughs) Oh, Jesus, thank you for the simplicity. Thank you for the the surgical knife that cuts through the the, the miasma of confusion about the world that we live in. And Jesus just gave a five-word answer. He said, an enemy has done this. He took no responsibility. He took no ownership of the pain and the evil and the suffering His five-word answer, someone else, I have an enemy. So now something begins to emerge. If God has an enemy, if Jesus says that an enemy has done this, it means that it's not just you and I that are bathed in this reality of conflict. It's God himself. And now we enter into the biblical picture. Gregory Boyd in his beautiful book, uh, Satan and the Problem of Evil, says the world looks like a war zone, and I love the simplicity here, because it is a war zone. The reason the world looks like a war zone, he says, is because it is is a war zone. Our lives are soaked in the inescapable reality of conflict, both external conflict, which we know all too well, and internal conflict. 
the desire to be what we want to be, but the struggle to be what we want to be. We've, we've let people down. We've let ourselves down. We've let our Lord down. We know that we have fallen far short of what we long to be and what we were created to be. We, we're, we, are, we are beset by conflict, and we can, we can deal with conflict in any number of ways. We can medicate ourselves out of the awareness of conflict. We can watch sports till we're, that becomes our new idol and our new God. We can absorb ourselves in television shows or movies or novels or whatever, just anything. It's called escapism. Reality is getting too dark, too dismal, too bleak for many. And so they just medicate themselves out of consciousness, right? But for those of us that choose to remain sober, and not just sober, but soberly optimistic, people look at us and say, how can you believe in a God that's good in a world that looks like this? And you know, all we can do is say an enemy has done this and then point amazingly, astonishingly to a cross. Friends, the struggle is real. The biblical story says it's not just us who are in some kind of conflict. It's, God's, it's God too. And this year, my wife and I, we took a tour of many of the countries that were significant in the Reformation with about 100 other people. And one of the places we went was the Colosseum in Rome. And the Colosseum in Rome was a place where there were battles reenacted and great war, uh, uh, wars were reenacted and, and uh, you know, people were you know, burned at the stake and they were fed to lions and, and all kinds of crazy things happened in the Colosseum, many of whom were Christians. And as you walk there, I, I snapped this photo just very quickly as we were walking our way in and we were in this long line and there were people in the Colosseum. It's something I wanted to see, but I was torn in my soul about going to the Colosseum as a tourist attraction because I knew that the Colosseum was a place of horrific and terrible death and cruelty. And yet now it was kind of a cool architectural phenomenon and it was interesting. It was a tourist attra attraction, but it was also a place of terror and death. And, and just as I walked into the entrance, the sun was beginning to go down and I, there was this cross there and I took a photo of it. And it dawned on me that, that, that in this world, this coliseum of a world where there is death and there is pain and there is cruelty, the answer to the cruelty of the world is the cross. And what's fascinating is that we don't see God putting people on crosses. We see God himself hanging on a cross. Not aloof to our pain, not unaware of our pain. The author of the book of Colossians, a man by the name of Paul said, having disarmed powers and authorities, he took away their weapons. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. Now, you just have to appreciate here with me for a moment the irony, the, 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 the absurdity of this verse. Okay, okay, okay. If you got nailed to a cross, you didn't triumph over anything. A cross was the sign of Roman power and cruelty and oppression. If you got nailed to a cross, you lost. You were a loser in the worst possible way because you didn't just get a sword run through you, which would have been comparatively easy and painless. You got nailed to a piece of wood naked and you died slowly, painfully over days. So the idea that you would be on a cross and somehow triumphing in, at, its, at its core is just absurd. It's a square circle. It's, it's, a, it's a dry ocean. It's a wet desert. It's, it doesn't make any sense. And yet Paul says something about Jesus' death on the cross broke the weapons of the enemy disarmed them. God has won the most important victory in the most unlikely way. And, and I will tease this out next week in the beautiful, believable plan, but I just want to tease you with it here for a moment. Something about Jesus being nailed to a Roman cross defeats evil forever. Now, I don't just expect, I don't just expect you to believe that on face value. I, I, listen, I get it. I get it. That's hard to believe. That's hard to believe. That a Jewish rabbi, a provocative young Jewish rabbi being nailed to a Roman cross 2,000 years ago is the end and, and, and uh, the obsolescence of evil. It brings about the obsolescence of evil. Really? Really? You're going 
have to explain that one, Pastor, but I want to tell you, it's the best story going. It's the best story going that God is not the inflictor of violence. God is not the contributor of violence. God, God doesn't escalate the conflict. He de-escalates the conflict, not by inflicting violence, but by becoming himself the recipient of somebody else's violence. He effectively breaks the weapons of violence by becoming the recipient of the cruelest possible violence. We'll pick that up next week. It's going to be exciting. I mean, you think, oh, I've been abandoned. I've wondered where God was. When that cancer test came back positive, when my child was born and there were complications or when my two friends were killed by a drunk driver, I thought, God, where are you? I got news for you. I wrote a whole book about this, a 300-page book about this. Not only do you wonder where God is, Jesus, who was God himself, wondered where God was. On the cross, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that's Aramaic, to say, my God, my God, where have you gone? That's Habakkuk's question. That's Jeremiah's question. That's the psalmist's question. And frankly, that's the world's question. And the good news is, is that God does not, is, he doesn't hold us in contempt for asking these questions. He knows the gravity of the question to be alone, to be the victim of injustice, and to need a helping hand and for there to be none. This is not a God aloof to our pain, which is why I titled my book, God in Pain. God in very pain. So creation, conflict, and then we lay over covenant. God's good creation, the skeletal system overlaid with conflict in which God's good creation has been perverted. We didn't get into all the details about how it became. That's not the point. The point is it is. We can talk about the who, the what, the where, the when, and the why at a future time. But nobody denies that this is not the best possible world. But then there's this other truth. God lays over the top. He sandwiches. That's a good way to say it. He sandwiches conflict between creation and covenant. 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 The covenant story is the story of God making and then keeping a promise. That's the story. The story of the Bible is the story of God making and keeping a promise. It looks like this in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, which is the first verse of the first book of the New Testament, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The son of who? The son of who? The son of David, the son of Abraham. What does that mean, Matthew? What does it mean that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham? I'm sorry to tell you, but, but not one in five Christians can answer that question in a persuasive way. They don't know about the answer. This is why we can just take the Bible and we can just go find the book of Matthew, which is about right here, and we can just cut this part out. We can just cut these two-thirds out, and, and we just distribute New Testaments. All we need is the New Testament. The New Testament's the good news. This Old Testament, what's it, what's it even needed for? And yet, contained in the very first word, the very first chapter, the very first verse, of the New Testament is this idea that this is the book of the beginning of Jesus Christ. He's the son of Abraham, the son of David. Who are they? Matthew's point is that Jesus' life makes sense only as a continuation of a larger story, the Davidic story, the Abrahamic story, the story of covenant. Matthew summarizes the Old Testament in Matthew chapter 1, verse 17. He says there's three chapters to the Old Testament. From Abraham to David, that's a chapter... From David to the carrying away into captivity, Israel's carrying away. That's a chapter. And then from the carrying away in captivity to the coming of the Christ, that's a chapter. Matthew's trying to get us to the story of Jesus, but he wants to get us to the story of Jesus in a responsible, historical, contextual, covenantal way. This is the very point that Christopher Wright makes in his excellent book, Knowing God Through the Old Testament. 
He says, so we need to respect these, those intentions and ask why it is that Matthew will not allow us to join the adoration of the Magi until we have plowed through this list of begettings. What do we need all these so-and-so begot, so-and-so begot, so-and-so begot, so-and-so begot, so-and-so in Matthew chapter 1? Just get to the story, he says. Just get to Matthew chapter 2 where the wise men show up with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Get to the good part. Why can't we just get on with the story, Wright asks. Because, says Matthew, you won't understand the story. The one I'm about to tell you, unless you see that it goes, is, unless you see it in the light of a much larger story that goes back for many centuries, but leads up to the Jesus that you want to know about, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That longer story is the history of the Hebrew Bible, or what Christians came to call the Old Testament. And I love this line here. The Old Testament tells the story that Jesus completes. The Old Testament tells the story that Jesus completes. He's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. Why? Because God made a covenant with Abraham. And God made a covenant with David. Let me translate that for you into modern English. God made a promise to Abraham. God made a promise to David. And the key is, and the point that Matthew's going to make, and Mark, and Luke, and John, and all of the New Testament writers, is that God kept his promise to Abraham. And God kept his promise to David in Jesus we had a giant problem, the problem of conflict, the problem of pain, the problem of death. And God sandwiches conflict with a covenantal love and with covenantal faithfulness. Jesus completes the story. You can think of it this way, to, to slightly oversimplify, but sometimes you have to oversimplify for the purpose of communication. Think of it this way. The Old Testament is the, is the story of a promise made. And the New Testament is the story of a promise. What's that word? Kept. This is why the Apostle Paul can say in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, probably my single favorite verse in the entire New Testament. For all of the promises of God, every promise that God ever made, finds its yes in Jesus. Friends, if you don't know the Old Testament, you are not going to appreciate the story of Jesus. Because the story of Jesus is suffused in the Old Testament. It only makes sense in the light of creation, in the light of conflict, and in the light of God's covenantal promise to Abraham, to David, and to their descendants. Covenant. All of God's promises are yes. What is the story of the Bible? What is this beautiful, believable story? It's a story set against the backdrop of the threefold narrative of creation. The skeletal system, the, the skeletal system that gives integrity and structure. It's good. But overlaid with the skeletal system is this story of conflict, a story that we know immersively and experientially. And a story, as we've learned here just briefly, God himself knows experientially and immersively. No one has suffered more than God. You've been to some funerals. God's been to every funeral. And then this story of covenant. What, 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 what? God made a promise? Yeah, God made a promise. Who did he make a promise to? He made a promise to Abraham and his descendants. And, and, and he made a promise to David and his descendants. And, and, and then the question of, did God keep his promise? And the answer is yes, he kept his promise by an amazing plan that we're going to look at next week, the, the beautiful, believable plan. In some ways, this is a part one to the next week's uh, pre presentation, which is part two, a beautiful, believable plan. Because the, the truth of creation and the truth of conflict and the truth of covenant find all of their center in Christ. We've asked the question, is it believable? Is there any evidence for this? Is it livable? Is there any experience? Does this resonate with our existential situation? And is it beautiful? Is it aesthetically pleasing? And the answer in every case is yes. Because friends, the story matters. 
The story you're telling yourself, the story you're telling your children, the story you... The, 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 every one of us views our life in some sort of story narrative format. We're moving through life, we're behind the camera, everybody else is a bit player in our movie. Okay? The question is, is what's the story? Is your story Jesus' story? Is it the biblical story? Is it a beautiful, believable story? Is it an aesthetically pleasing story? Is it a story in which you are fulfilling your creational intent? Is it a story in which you find yourself racked by conflict inside and outside? And is it a story in which you are reaching out, needing, yea, hungering and thirsting, not only for a promise to have been made, but for a, a promise to have been kept? Friends, the story matters. Your story matters to God. And God is inviting you to participate in His story, in the rhythm of His story, in the plot of His story, in the unfolding of His story, and finally, and thankfully, in the climax of His story. A story in which there will be creation and there will be covenant, but in which conflict has been squeezed out of existence. How? How will God do that? How will God obliterate and eliminate conflict in the most unlikely way possible, in a way that no human would have dreamed of, in a way that no other God would have dreamed of. In fact, to me, this is one of the most persuasive arguments for the believability of the Bible. No one could have written this story. No one would have written this story. No one would have solved the problem of evil in this way. Friends, not all gods are good news. This God is good news, and He invites you to participate in the beautiful, believable story that is a story of your creation, a story of your life being beset by conflict, various kinds, financial, physical, emotional, marital, but then a story that at the end of the day has a happy ending because not, God is not just a promise-making God. The God of Scripture is a promise-keeping God. He kept His promise to Abraham. He kept His promise to David, and He will keep His promise to you. Father in heaven, Today, we need not just any ordinary God, Father. Today, an ordinary God won't do. Father, today, we need the one true God. We need the creator God who formed us and fashioned us in our mother's womb, the God who knew us before there was an us to know. Father, today, we need a God who not only looks at our conflict from afar, who not only looks at the crack house and the garbage dump and the prison and says, man, that must be rough but a God who became immersively involved in all of the pain, all of the hurt, all of the conflict, and even the death of life. We need a God who cries out, who understands, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, where are you? And Father, we need a God who will not only make, but who will keep promise. And Father, that is the God of Jesus. It's you. It's the one that we call Father, the one to whom we turn. And so, Father, today we turn our attention to you. We turn our praise to you. We turn our face to you. Today we receive your story, a beautiful, believable story, a livable, aesthetically pleasing story. Father, teach us how to make our story, how to incorporate our story into yours, how to make our story a part of yours, this beautiful story that you are telling of rescue and of redemption, and of promise-keeping. Father, we are yours, and we place our lives into your capable hands and into the crucified hands of Jesus, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Let everyone say,